morning, church. Just want to let you guys know that you're beautiful. Um, standing in the back, waiting to do communion and waiting to do to read, uh, listening to everybody pray and everybody prays. It's just, I don't know. It's just beautiful. So, <laughs> so if you'll join me, we're going to be in First Corinthians chapter 15 today. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that, it, that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised and even Christ... For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. <clears throat> if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, all, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, but by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expect that he is expected who he <laughs> it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I love Paul. Pray with me, please. Father God, I thank you for this day that we uh, get to, to come together to worship you, to praise you, to get into your word and dig. And I thank you for Jackie and his, 
his willingness to serve, Lord, to pour himself out uh, for your cause. And I just pray that our ears would be open and our hearts would be uh, tilled, Lord, that the word that, w- that you have for us today would, would not fall on fallow ground, that we would uh, apply it to our lives, that we would uh, take the precious gift that we have in you uh, and we would be bold with it, Lord. I, I thank you. Uh, Thank you, God, for, for doing what you said you were going to do and raising Jesus from the grave. And, and in that, we are raised with him. And I just pray uh, that we would hold fast to that and hold fast to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come before the Lord this morning, and as we look at the text before us, I'm reminded that, you know, we want to, we want to recognize that there's a purpose to the resurrection. There's something exciting about resurrection day. There's something that it speaks for all of us and into each one of us. And I, and I hope it's more, I hope it's so much more than uh, chocolate bunnies and eggs. I hope it's more than the, the fun you're going to have. There's nothing wrong with it. Go have fun. You know, go, go, go be a family and enjoy it, but don't lose sight of what it was for, what it was all about. The purpose that was wrought on, on that day more than 2,000 years ago. And as we were discussing this yesterday morning with the men's group, uh, um, you know, the Lord just impressed on my heart 1 Corinthians 15. That's why we get it this morning. And as we, as we look at it together, I hope that we can see what Paul is pointing to. What Paul is saying, hey, here's what it's about. Here's what uh, Resurrection Day is for. Here's what the gospel is. Here's, here's why we live and breathe and have our being in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at it. In, we see first the importance here. Of the gospel. Look at it in verse 1 with me, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. Man, that's a, just an important sentence. I want to remind you the gospel I preached to you. He's going to give it to us in just a moment. He's going to tell us what the gospel is. But here's what we want to recognize of the gospel that he shared. They received it. it means they, they heard it and applied it in their life. And it is that gospel in which they stand. That's their foundation. That's our foundation as a believer. This is it. This is where we find the place where we can stand. And it is by this word, through this gospel, we're saved. That's what he says very next, right? And by which you are saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If you hold fast, and he's going to describe it. What is this thing I'm holding fast to? Their struggle here was, well, did Christ really rise and does it matter? I mean, did it, did it really happen? I mean, it's so long ago. Look, I just want you to realize, there is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other point in history. Period. If you're going to throw out the resurrection of Christ, you have to throw out every major point of history. Because there's more eyewitness accounts to the resurrection of Christ than any of those other accounts that we're, that we're discussing. Each and every one of those falls short to what you have. The one thing that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt is the tomb is empty. He's not there. 
You can go to Mecca and you can, uh, you can celebrate at the tomb of Muhammad. He's there. But Christ's tomb is empty. A few years ago, I don't know how long ago it was, I love the History Channel because they like to bring hoaxes forward. And the History Channel did a show on, they just discovered the real tomb of Jesus and surprise, there's a body in it. So, so they, they go to it. They thought that this was the real tomb of Jesus because there was a name in the, in the uh, ossuary where they keep the bones that had Mary's name on it. So if it had Mary's name on it, it must be Jesus, right? Because the only other Mary that ever existed was the mother of Jesus. And Jesus' name's not all that common. Jesus' name is like John today. You ever met a guy named John? Yeah, the name is Yeshua. Yeshua, Joshua, in Greek, it's Jesus. So we, we, they, they said, well, we found this tomb. And it took about 15 minutes of the scholars to get into the tomb for them to say, yeah, this is bogus. So they, they had this plan, right? They were going to open up this, this tomb and part of the tour in Israel, you were going to go see the real tomb of Jesus. And nobody ever went. Because, because... The scholars came forward and said, yeah, this is way later, and it's bogus. This is not the tomb. The best evidence, guys, bar none, the best evidence is the tomb of the open sepulcher. Right. Why is that the best? I I like Gordon's Calvary myself, but the best evidence is for the tomb of the open sepulcher. Why? Because way back, you guys remember a guy named Constantine, roughly around 300 A.D.? Constantine's mom a little bit before Constantine, she, uh, she started going around and marking every site where anything happened about Jesus. So in the year 2014, if somebody wants to dig up a tomb and say it's Jesus, I have a hard time buying it. But if someone 2,000 years ago said, marked a spot and said, we need to build a church here, this is a tomb where Jesus was laid, that carries more weight with me. Not with you? Are we smarter in 2014 than we were back then? Hasn't been my experience anyway. We have this sure evidence. I've been to Israel eight times. Still no tomb, or no body in the tomb. It's empty. Whether I go to Gordon's Calvary, which is called the Garden Tomb, that tomb's empty. I go to the tomb of the, the, the Church of the Open Sepulchre, it's empty. It's empty. It's been empty for 2,000 years. You don't think if there was a body, they would have produced it? They could have shut this whole thing down with a body, no? They could have shut it all down. Christianity would have gone away in the first week. Put the body out. No, these guys are bogus. Here's the body. But they couldn't. They couldn't because there is a sure fact of the resurrection. But the, the church in Corinth was wondering, well, what, why, is it important? Is it important? Because then, as now, people say, well, that's ridiculous. People don't rise from the dead. People don't rise from the dead. How, how can this be? How can this be important for us? So Paul writes in this letter, listen, unless you're believing in vain, it's the resurrection of Christ that puts all these pieces together. Apart from the resurrection, we have nothing. With the resurrection, we have a gospel. Here it is in verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 
First thing that he lays out for the of prime importance, Christ died for our sins. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, when Paul is telling the churches of Galatia how it was he received the gospel, listen to what he said. He said, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me. It's not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul had this incredible, transforming experience with Jesus. Paul, the one who was persecuting the church, wiping out Christians, right? Becomes the the number one proponent for Christianity. Establishing churches all around Asia Minor, moving forward. So he says, I've delivered to you what I received. I got this from Jesus. Jesus told me this gospel First and foremost, what do we want to understand? Christ died for us. Isaiah 53. If you get time today, somewhere during your day, just, just open it up and read it. Read this prophecy from the prophet Isaiah as he talks about the suffering servant. The Mashiach Nagid, the one who would give his life for the sins of many. The one who would purge sin, the one whom everyone would look at and think, oh, he's afflicted by God, but would come to realize that he was very God himself. It says Christ died for us. Just a slight uh, point at some Greek that's in the aorist tense. It means Christ died once for all. doesn't have to continue dying It was one time for all. He has accomplished it. And He died for what? In behalf of our sins. For us. On behalf of our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became our sin sacrifice so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. He died for our sin. He took that upon Himself on the cross. He who knew no sin became the sacrifice for sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4. It says that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He was buried. Again, Isaiah 53 verse 9 says that they made His grave with the wicked and with the rich in His death. Although He had done no violence and there was no deceit in His mouth. He went as a lamb to his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He died and he was buried, and then the scripture goes on, and he raised on the third day according to the scripture. Now, some people ask this question, where is that? Where does it say that in the Bible? Let me give you a quick peruse. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11 says this, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. In Old Testament Jewish thought, corruption occurred day four. Day four is when corruption occurred. How do I know that? Because I read the Bible. In the Gospel of John, 
uh, somewhere around chapter 4, where we read about Lazarus. You guys remember the story about Lazarus? And Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, but he waits. And then he gets word that Lazarus is dead. He goes. And when he's talking to Mary and Martha, he says, Mary and Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he said, take me to the tomb. And they take him to the tomb. He says, open the tomb. And they say, no, Lord, why? He stinks. How many days had it been? Four days. Corruption sets in on the fourth day. Impossible to raise someone from the dead after they've been dead four days. Unless you're God. And he can call those things which are not as though they are. So he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. The Holy One is an idiom for the Messiah. The Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the Prince. So he said, you will not allow the Messiah to see corruption. Which means he can't be in the grave four days. He's got to come out of the grave before then. Jesus said every time he told his disciples, hey, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to be crucified. What else did he tell them? And on the third day I'm going to rise. And on the third day I'm going to rise. And on the third day I'm going to rise. He told them the third day he was going to come. And so what is the gospel? Verse 4, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared. He didn't just raise and nobody saw him. He raised and appeared to Cephas. Peter. He went to Peter. You remember the last time we left Peter? What was he doing? He's denying the Lord, right? In fact, we're going to read about it as we continue our study through Luke. We're going to see that in the day when Jesus is being beaten, at the same time, Peter is being uh, called on the carpet around the fire. And as he denies, he knows him for the third time. It says, Jesus looked at him. Peter saw him and went away and wept bitterly. Their eyes met. And I'm sure Peter heard what the Lord had said earlier when he said, Peter, you say you'll stand with me no matter what, but before the cock crows this night, you're going to deny you even know me. And so we have that denial. But what happens when Christ raises, where does he go? He goes to Peter. Who else? To the twelve. To the twelve. Now you say there's only eleven. That's not important. The title for the disciples throughout Scripture is always the Twelve. Let me ask you a question. How many tribes are there in Israel? You sure? But what do they call them? The Twelve, right? Twelve tribes of Israel and the Twelve disciples. Now, they appoint another disciple. We read about it in Acts chapter 1. I think that was God's purpose. You can argue with me tomorrow at coffee. If you want to, that's okay. I don't mind. I like to argue. So you're welcome to join me in that. But I want you to understand, that's just a title for him. When he talks about the twelve, you know which guys he's talking about, right? Those guys that are within the inner circle. So he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then it says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So when this is being written by Paul, he says, look, you don't believe me, go talk to them. They're around telling the story. They're still here. It's kind of hard to to tell a lie in the presence of eyewitnesses, isn't it? He says, look, they're, they're still alive, although some have fallen asleep. He says he appeared to James. That's the Lord's brother. The writer of the book of James. One of the general epistles. 
He appears to James and then to all the apostles. Now you might say, that not that redundant? No, it's not. Because the twelve are called apostles, but there are others that are called apostles. Those others are the ones who are going to be the pens behind the New Testament. The guys who write the New Testament, they bear the title apostle. One of those guys, like Paul, right? But Paul's going to pull himself out of that group and say, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Untimely born means one who was born in unusual circumstances. His birth, his birth wasn't normal, right? I mean, uh, it was and it wasn't. I, I want you guys to understand the conversion of Paul is an exciting thing because it really illustrates for you and I the reality that God is able to absolutely transform a life. Is there anybody in here who is or can bear witness to the truth that God transforms lives? I know I can. So that's what happened to Paul, right? Paul's headed one direction. He meets Jesus, and where does he end up? Going the other way, right? He's going one way. He ends up going the other way. He says, I was born of unusual circumstances. I was untimely born. And he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Why? Because he was a persecutor of the church. He was persecuting the Lord. He was going in the opposite direction of what the Lord uh, uh, was directing. And so God meets him on his road. One of the great exciting things, guys, about Resurrection Day is that that's what God does in every one of our lives. We're on a road. The Bible talks about the reality that there are two roads. One that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. Jesus talked about it. He said there's a narrow way and a broad way. Broad way leads to destruction. Narrow way leads to life. The book of Proverbs talks about it. The path of life and the path of destruction. So when the Lord uses terms like repent, what does that mean? That's not some church word that means, you know, drop down on your knees before the, the altar or the, the stage in the front of the church and, and weep. That's not repentance. Repentance is changing your direction. You're on the path of destruction. Repentance means I got on the path of life. I changed my direction. For every one of us, we were like Paul, right? Going the wrong way. But God intervenes in our life. If we sat around and all told our stories about how God intervened in our life, we would have some pretty dramatic stories to tell. Where God met us and how He got us turned around. So Paul, the same way, he's saying, listen, you got to hold fast to the gospel because the gospel that saves us is anchored to the resurrection of Christ. It is anchored to the reality that Christ rose again. Look at verse 9, 1 Corinthians 15. says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love that phrase. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Not, a lot of people would like me to be different. Yeah? You guys, some of you guys don't know that. You're like, oh, I don't really know anything about you, Jackie. Well, a lot of people would like me to be different. The good news is I have a normal haircut right now. So I know everybody's happy about the hair. I'm not sure everybody's happy about the beard, but they've, they've learned to kind of go along with it in hopes that this morning, I think they were hoping I got closer to the fire so it would maybe trim it up. 
I don't know. But here's the reality, guys, for every one of us. We are what we are by the grace of God. God didn't save us because there was something great about us or outstanding about us. God saved us primarily because He loves us. And God saved us because of His grace. That unmerited favor that God cares. He saw broken humanity and, and He's done something about it. Everybody wants to shake a fist at God. Why don't you just make it easy? Make it all go away. Yeah. Is that what you do for your kids? Oh, I don't think so. Really? If it is, you got rotten kids. What do we do for our kids? What do our kids need to learn? There's things our kids need to learn, and we don't need to learn those same things. Mankind doesn't need to learn. Mankind, 1933, corporate man stood before his maker and declared, there is no God, we have to save ourselves. And ever since then, we've been learning. Is there a God or isn't there? Some would say, if there is a God, why, why he would take away every evil thing in the world. He would make it all go away. Yeah, it'd be an empty world. What do you mean? Well, the Bible declares that you're wicked. The Bible declares that I'm wicked. The Bible tells the truth about my heart. What I learn every time I turn on the news is that I don't have to think, you know, there's somewhere out there that evil exists. No, that's right in here. And it needs to be submitted to Christ. Or I'm capable of the same things other people do that you say are crazy. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. That's not somebody else's heart. (laughs) That's mine. So what did God do about it? God declared that I do not glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live. That the wicked would repent. Why should you perish, Israel? Repent and live. Three separate times in the book of Ezekiel, God declares, Repent. Come back to me. I am the cure for what's messed up in your heart. And if man will turn to God, he'll be made whole. And then the journey can begin. It doesn't end. We're learning every day, every step of our walk toward the Lord. Paul would write, he would say, listen, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which lie behind, I do what? I press on. Toward who? Jesus Christ, the upward call of the Lord Jesus. I'm pursuing Him. I'm going after Him. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But I have to know who I am. I have to know what I am. I have to know what I am about. Listen, His grace toward me was not in vain. It wasn't useless. The grace of God accomplished something in me. Where sin abounded, grace superabounds. God has more grace than you have sin. God is able to outgrace your sin. Therefore, any man, woman, and child who will bow the knee to his or her creator, 
and call upon the name of the Lord can be saved because God's grace is greater than your sin. God's grace is greater than our failure. God is able to overcome. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul was compelled. He says that the love of Christ compelled me. You remember Jesus told a story. Remember when he was having a a dinner with Simon the Pharisee? You guys remember the story? He's having dinner with Simon the Pharisee, and this woman comes in at his feet. She's behind him. Remember, they're reclining, so his head's toward the table, his feet behind him. This woman begins to weep, and her tears fall on Jesus' feet. And so she notices his feet are dirty. She wipes his feet with her hair. She had come with an alabaster flask of costly ointment, so she poured it out on his feet. And Simon the Pharisee is looking at Jesus and said, This guy can't be for real, because if he was, he'd know what kind of woman that was who's touching him. I think sometimes that's how we think. And it's not good. There but by the grace of God go I. That's what ought to be in our minds. Simon the Pharisee is thinking this. And so Jesus looks to him and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, there were two people who owed the, the king a great sum. One owed a million bucks. The other, the other guy owed a thousand the king paid them both. He, he forgave both of their debts. My question, Simon, is which one loves the king more? Simon said, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. So Jesus said, so this woman, whose sins are many, has been forgiven much because she loves much. How? Where do we find the love of Christ that compels us? We find the love of Christ that compels us when we recognize our sinfulness. If we think we're Simon the Pharisee and I'm a pretty good person and I'm good, then we don't really think Jesus did all that much for us. But if we see ourselves like the woman weeping at His feet, we recognize, wow, look what the Lord has done for me. And we love much because we know we've been forgiven much. If we can take a real honest look at our heart. For most of us, at least all the guys in here, if I was able to hook a wire into your ear that plugged into your thought, and we just paused service and plugged it into the screen back there and played your thoughts for the last 30 minutes. How's that going to go? You're lucky I don't got one. I'd grab somebody and say, hey, let's find out. (laughs) The Bible wants us to know like Paul knew. I've been forgiven much. It's not some false humility. It's just being real with who I am. Look, it's easy for me to be real because I was a dirtbag. Maybe for some of you it's harder because you haven't done things as bad as others. But if you'll be honest with your heart and with your thought, and what really is happening inside of you, you'll recognize. I want to be like the woman who loves much because I know I've been forgiven much. It doesn't mean that Simon the Pharisee didn't have sins. He probably had more. One of them being pride. But that's going to keep him from being able to experience all that God has for him because he can't recognize that. I want to see like Paul sees. 
the grace of God that is with me is working through me. Whether then it is I or they, so we, so we preached, so you believe. It doesn't matter where you heard the gospel. It doesn't matter where you believe the gospel. None of that makes any difference. What makes a difference is you heard it. What makes a difference is you believed it. You trusted in Him. And that gospel, that's what we celebrate on Easter morning. That's what we celebrate Resurrection Day. That the resurrected King is resurrecting me. For though I was dead in my trespasses and sin, He has made me alive together with Him. For by grace you have been saved. Man, it's amazing when we recognize the reality that Christ's resurrection is shouting back to me, I can make you alive too, Jackie. Right now. I can make you alive. You who are dead in your trespasses and sin. I can make you live. I can make you breathe. I can make you understand. I can make you see. In verse 12, he goes on, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How, come, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, your faith is useless. We have been found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. He's saying, why is the resurrection important? What's the big deal? Because if there's no resurrection, you got nothing. There's nothing. Without the resurrection, Christ is not raised. Preaching is useless. Faith is useless. We're all false witnesses. Our pardon is impossible. In verse 16, he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, they're just gone. They've perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, then I can't believe that He's able to raise me. I was a dead man walking. That's just the truth. 1988... 87, I was in a hospital in Bethesda, waiting, wondering why I wasn't dead yet. Watching guys all around me die. One after another, after another. I was a dead man walking. But Christ has made me alive. 1988, I was diagnosed with HIV. Spent the next three months in a part of the hospital in Bethesda where all I did was watch guys come in, catch something, and die. One after another, after another, just waiting for my turn. That's what doctor said. Just waiting for my turn. Dead man walking. Now, what was happening outside the reality of my life was the truth of what was happening inside my life. Because I can tell you I was diagnosed with HIV, you can say, wow, that, that must have been a, a difficult time, and that's crazy that, that uh, you're still here. Yeah, there, there's other crazy things too. But when we look at that, what I want you to see, don't, don't just see that part. 
realize that that's how we all are. We are all dead on the inside. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can be made alive. I'm dead in my sin. I'm dead in my relationship with God. I have no spiritual relationship. I have no tie with Him. I'm separated from Him. Now, in my life, in 1988, eventually the hospital got tired of looking at me and told me to go home. So I went home. Then every... Well, I can't remember. About every month or every other month, they'd bring me out, check me out. I'd get to go through all the the psychiatric stuff that they that they would have us go through. That was the eighties. So some of you guys maybe weren't born yet, but back then AIDS was a little freaky. So I don't think it's as quite as people are quite as crazy about it now as they were back then. But back then it was pretty crazy. My firstborn son was born during that time to a bunch of astronauts because nobody wanted any fluid on them. You ever been at a birth? A lot of fluid. They had a helicopter waiting on the roof to take him away, just in case he tested positive. Of course, there wasn't a lot of hope in it because it can lie dormant in your system for up to eight years or longer. So just because your baby tests negative when he's born doesn't mean he's going to stay that way. For a year, back and forth, dead man walking, just waiting for the time. But when, the, when, when we had entered into this trial, my wife and I, I told you, I, I was a dirtbag. I was not, I, won't, I don't know if I'll say I was not a believer. I certainly wasn't walking a believer's life. I might have said the words, but I sure wasn't living the life. And I remember going to my wife and telling her, hey, babe. Got HIV. I don't know. What are you going to do? We knelt by a couch in a single wide trailer and prayed. And I said, okay, God, I don't know how much time I got or what's left. But what's left of my life, I'm giving you. So if it's long or short, it's all yours. It's not really much. It's pretty much a burnout husk. But it's all your life. So I give it to him. And the next year plus, year and a half, we, we were going through the, the stuff, doing the thing. My, my son was born during that time, stayed pretty healthy. My wife stayed pretty healthy. Then one day they did a test after a year and a half, and that one came back Negative. And if you know anything about the military, they don't understand that. So they tried to drain all the blood out of my body. Looking, I'm not joking. They literally said, we're going to look at like every cell and see if we can find it. So they drained, uh, not all of it, but they drained a lot of blood. And they looked for it. And they sent me home. Now they didn't tell me nothing. Kathy had a dream one night. She woke up and she was crying. She had a dream that I was dead, the baby was dead, she was visiting the gravestone in a cemetery, and she was sick. We were both gone. And she woke up from her dream and she said, Lord, I don't know 
how much longer I can do this. And she went out to the mailbox and there was a letter from the Marine Corps, which in very clear Marine Corps said, we don't really know what happened, but you tested positive on this date and for a year and a half now you're, it's not in you, so you can go back to regular duty. That was a that was an outward expression of what God does inside every one of us. Don't get hung up on the concept of, of healing or not healed or military made a mistake. None of that matters. The illustration is the same. I was dead. He made me alive. In a real sense, I'm dead in my sins and God made me alive. That is actually a more real sense than the healing. That is a more real reality when Christ makes us alive together in Him. That's what the resurrection promises. If there is none, then we have no hope. What are you hoping for? Everybody who died is dead and in the ground. The reason we celebrate resurrection day is because the tomb's empty. The reason we celebrate resurrection day is because I was dead and now I'm alive. Because I was blind and now I see. Because God's done a work. It's not always about the healing or what He can take away from our life. It's what He's already done in you. Because if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, He took you who were dead, and He made you alive. And He does it every day, over and over again, in the lives of people who will put their faith and their trust in Him. So what's the result of our resurrection? Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits. He's the beginning of the harvest. The beginning of the harvest, they would take the first fruits and they would wave it before the Lord. They would give it to God. The first fruit was a promise that there's a harvest to come. Christ rising from the dead is a promise there's a harvest to come. He's the first, but He's not the last. That when we have people who we love in Christ who die, we have a hope that there is a home eternal. There is a way, there is a place. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about it. There's a first fruits. For as by one man came death, so by one man has come the resurrection of the dead. We all died in Adam. That's what he says. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In Christ all. Not just me. Not just people who have been touched or people who have been healed. Everyone is made alive in Christ. Everyone is brought to life. Everyone can love Him like the woman who wept at His feet if they can recognize what it is that Christ has done in them. In Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death, Through sin, so death spread to how many? All men. What do we inherit from Adam? Death. We inherit death. We inherited death from our fathers before us. But Jesus, in Jesus, what do we inherit? Life. Remember I told you at the beginning, two roads, a narrow way and a broad way, the book of Proverbs, the way of life and the way of death. What is it that he's telling us? He says, Adam, he put us all on the road to death. 
But Christ came to show us the road of life. He said to His disciples, Hey, you, come what? Follow me. Why are we following Him? So we can walk on what? The path of life. So that we can live. So that we experience life. How it was meant to be. Not the distorted life the way that we have made it or built it. In Christ, all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ first. Then at his coming, all who belong to him. I want you to realize that as we put our faith in Christ, we are made alive. And our resurrection begins then. In a sense, we begin to be transformed into his image. Right? Every day, if we're following Christ, we become more and more like Him, yeah? More and more, we, we start to look like Him and talk like Him and act like Him because that's what we want, right? We want to we follow Christ on the path of life and see these things expressed in our life. And then that finds its culmination when I stand before Him one day. When this life is over and I look into His eyes and I pray to hear the phrase, well done, Good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we want? What I don't want to hear is, man, Jackie, I was pretty sure you weren't going to make it. There's still flame licking up around my feet and I smell like smoke. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for well done. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Those at His coming. Christ is going to come. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says that the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with Him. There is a day. There will be a day. When, when this corruptible body will put on incorruption. When this perishable body will put on immortality. And then the final victory will be had. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because Christ won the victory. He didn't stay in the ground. He only borrowed the tomb, right? He came forth from that. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. Paul says, for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, right? You know, every one of those is angelic forces, or what we might call today demonic forces, right? What is it that the Lord is saying here? He's saying, look, the day is going to come when He's going to set up His kingdom and He's going to put them all down. He's going to put down Satan. He's going to put down His minions. He's going to put down the enemies, those, those spiritual forces that we can't begin to see or fully understand. He's going to put them all down. He's going to stick a flag in the earth according to Revelation. He's going to declare all the kingdoms of this earth are now the kingdom of our God and King." He's going to redeem it all. He's going to restore it all. And then he says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is who? Death. That's what the resurrection, that's what resurrection day is all about. It is the first fruits, the promise, that one day death is going to die. 
Here's how he says it in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't have time to go all 58 verses, but look at verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body will put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin was the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through who? The Lord Jesus Christ. By what? The resurrection. By the resurrection. He died for our sins. He rose for our justification. He died for our sin. He rose for our sanctification. He died for our sin. He rose for our glorification. His rising from the dead declares that He will finish what He started in you. That He won't leave you half done. Is that good news? I got half done stuff all over my garage. Half done stuff everywhere in there. I'm going to back up a truck here as soon as I officially declare it to be spring. It's not officially spring until I get to ride the motorcycle for an entire week. So if I get to ride the bike for an entire week, we're in the spring. I'm going to back up the truck to the garage and throw away all my half done projects. And somebody else is going to pick them up out of the dump and take them and put them in their garage. Maybe they'll finish them, maybe they won't. I'm thankful that God doesn't get something half done. He gets it all the way done. What he started, he will finish. So the climax of history is what we read about in verse 27 and 28. 1 Corinthians 15. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. God put all things in subjection under the feet of Christ. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain he is accepted. The Father is not put in subjection to the Son. He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, to the Son, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Let me give you a a simple way of understanding Paul. Here's what he's saying. The Father said to the Son, when He rose, when He ascended into heaven, You can read about it in the book of Daniel. Yeah? He rose up. The Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days said, Hey, here's your throne. Sit here. Psalm 110, he declared, You sit there until I've made your enemies your footstool. So God the Father is going to put everything in subjection to Christ. So that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, right, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Of God the Father. So, He's going to put all things in subjection to Christ. The whole world will have been redeemed. Every kingdom brought back into subjection of the Lord. And then Jesus is going to bring that kingdom to His Father. He's going to kneel before His Father and He says, It's yours, Dad. All the kingdoms of this world is yours. It's all been redeemed. What was lost in Adam has been found in Christ. What was lost in Adam will be restored in him so that God can be all in all. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working together. The Son subjected to the Father. Just like a son subjected to a father here. The same, similar relationship. Doesn't mean a son is of less value, does it? My son's not of less value than me. He's my glory, in fact. 
He's my joy. Isn't he? Do any of us have children and we feel differently about that? Even when our kids are knuckleheads. Does it change? No. Nope. When my kids were knuckleheads, still my glory. They're still my joy. We see similar experiences. as we look at the triune God. That God may be all in all. The Bible says in Colossians that it pleased God that in Christ all the fullness of God would dwell in bodily form. Fully God, fully man, submitted to the Father. What's he showing me? What did Jesus say? Remember we talked about it. He said there's a narrow way and a broad way. He said, you, hey, come follow me. He's going to show us the way. What's the way? He's going to show us the road to walk. Where does that road lead to? The Father and what? Submission to the Father, doesn't it? Submission to the Father means I bow the knee. That God's king, not me. That he's in charge, not me. Revelation chapter 4 verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. That's what he's talking about. The beginning of that victory started this morning, a couple thousand years ago, when Christ broke out of the tomb. You know, they don't have the stone. They got the, the place where the stone went. I'm pretty sure that thing just blew to pieces. It's just gone. It's out of the way. Nobody's ever going to seal that tomb again. It's gone. He has won the victory. He is making us alive together with Him. That's Resurrection Day. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. word declares. God, we pray that you would give us, Father, just the eyes to see and ears to hear, to, to be able to reconcile and understand Resurrection Day, what Easter morning's all about. Lord, I pray for each and every one that's here today, God, that as they go throughout their day and the various uh, family events that they have, God, be glorified and magnified in each one of those. Lord, that that the day, no matter how fun or whatever things they do, God, that you are at the center. For it is you, it is in you and about you and through you that everything fits together, that everything makes sense, that our lives consist in you. You hold it all together. So God, we glorify you and magnify you this morning. We lift your holy name on high. For you are the name. The name, the only name under all heaven and throughout all the earth by which men must be saved. Lord Jesus, be glorified this day. In Jesus' name. Amen.